This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is a science podcast for May 27th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, freelance space journalist Jonathan O'Callaghan. We take a look back at the contributions of the Mars InSight lander. It's set to retire by the end of this year after spending almost four years on the surface monitoring Mars quakes. Next, we hear from researcher John Cryan. He wrote a commentary article as part of a special issue on the whole body microbiome. We discuss what we actually know about the role of the microbiome in the brain from development to behavior. Finally, the first in our new series on books exploring the science of food and agriculture. This month, host Angela Saini talks with Usman Badian about his book on science, technology, agriculture, and development in Africa. First up this week, the Mars InSight lander is set to retire. We look back at the contributions of the lander to our understanding of Mars interior with freelance space writer Jonathan O'Callaghan. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. So I feel like it wasn't that long ago that we went through this nail-biting landing on Mars for the InSight, but it was back in 2018. It's 2022. Why is it going to shut down this year? So yeah, it was a nervy landing back in the day, but uh, things went pretty smoothly. We got this thing to the surface in this flat and boring region of Mars, but scientifically interesting. <laughs> but yeah, just over time, Martian dust has accumulated on the solar panels on the lander, and it's meant that the power they can generate has just started to drop, and it's now a tenth what it could do when it first landed at the start of the mission is compared to uh, the output of an electric oven at the moment for a few hours. In order to run its instruments, obviously it needs power to, to power those instruments and then to send the signals back to Earth with all the useful data. And without power, it's kind of dead in the water. So that's the state. This is a quiet, quote unquote, boring part of Mars, as you say. In what way is it boring? Yeah, it's kind of weird. We don't think you'd want, we'd want to go to a boring location. We send the rovers to interesting ancient rivers and things. But because InSight is a stationary lander and because of the nature of what it was doing, we just wanted a location that was really flat, had no boulders that would maybe hit its legs or impact it, had a really low level of wind as well, so that it could have very quiet, calm conditions. So we picked this really uninteresting location. <laughs> yeah, and no wind means that dust just keeps coming and settling and nothing's going to blow the dust off the lander. 
Yeah, that's right. There, there isn't any super strong wind on Mars because the air pressure is so low. It's comparable to someone blowing on your hands. <laughs> and that dust just kind of falls onto the panels over time and it's very difficult to get off. And the reason it needs a quiet area, a quiet place, is because it's listening for things. Can you talk about the main instruments and, and what they were set out to do? So the main instrument on the lander is a seismometer. In the same way that Earth has earthquakes that we like to track with seismograms, Mars has Marsquakes. We put insight on the surface of Mars to listen to these quakes and to track the movement of the waves causing the quakes through the interior of Mars. By doing this with the seismometer, we can put a map together of what the interior of the planet looks like. But the quakes on Mars are pretty small. They are generally up to about a magnitude four. Obviously on Earth, we get magnitude seven, eight, even nine sometimes. So to hear them is very difficult. You need to be really sensitive, really quiet, really calm. You can't have any background noise, no wind. So we have this very sensitive instrument on the surface of Mars that has just about been able to pick up some of these Mars quakes as they come through the planet. What are some of the major things we learned about the inside of Mars because we had this delicate seismometer there? The main findings that came out last year were piecing together the structure of the planet's interior. We've never looked inside another planet before. Obviously, we know that Earth has sort of like an, a core, an inner and outer core. Then it has this thick mantle and then it has the crust on which we live. But we didn't know really if other planets were the same, like what did they look like inside? But we found out by listening to 1300 Mars quakes that Mars is pretty similar. It has a core, it has a mantle, pretty thick, and it has a crust. But there are some key differences between Mars and Earth. So the Martian mantle is uh, just one thick layer, whereas ours is kind of two layers. And the Martian crust is maybe quite thin and only has a couple of layers. And obviously Mars doesn't really have the same tectonic plates or tectonic activity that we have on Earth. There's a little bit of difference in how the two planets' interiors operate and how they've evolved over time. There was a really big Mars quake recently. Is that going to add to what we know about the interior getting a really big signal like that? Yeah. So on the 4th of May, we had this monster quake. It was in magnitude 5, the biggest quake seen so far. In fact, it's bigger than all the other quakes in the mission combined. So it was really interesting. And it was what scientists have been hoping to see all mission, because the bigger the quake, the more you can detect inside the planet. So yeah, with this quake, they're hoping to piece together more of the interior, get a better map of what's going on, maybe do some other cool science. I understand there's quite a lot under wraps at the moment that they're not allowed to discuss. Are there other data sets that we're still waiting on results from as well? Yeah, there are. So there's a radio instrument on top of the lander, and that's been used to try and work out exactly what the Martian core is like. So at the moment, we know that there is a core, and it's a bit bigger than we thought it was going to be. And we can tell it's molten as well. But Earth's core has a solid inner core and then a molten outer core. We're not really sure what the Martian core looks like. We can't really tell that much just from the seismic waves. But this radio instrument is going to track the wobble of Mars, and it's going to try and see how much it's tilting, how much it's tilting in its orbit as it goes around the sun. And that should be able to tell us what's going on inside the planet and tell us a bit more about the core that's driving kind of some of this motion of the planet. Is there anything that we learned from the insight that doesn't have to do with the inside of the planet? Because it was sitting on the surface for a while there. Did it pick up any other tidbits? Yeah, so it had some cameras on board. So it took some pictures of its location. It found some evidence for uh, lava flows that once flowed in its location. Obviously, we think Mars was once volcanically active. We can see evidence for cracks and even ancient volcanoes on the surface. Even some tentative evidence for more recent volcanic activity, maybe even still today, but we're not quite sure. And it also was able to measure the magnetic field at the landing site. And it found that the magnetic field of Mars is about 10 times stronger than we thought. Wow. The Martian magnetic field played a big role in keeping the water there originally before it dissipated. And we're not really sure why it dissipated. 
Why did Mars lose its magnetic field and lose its atmosphere? So those are all kind of key parts of telling the story of the planets. What do you think is special about the insight, what it's found or what's happening now with it? Definitely the fact that it's focused on seismology. It's maybe an area of science that has not received a lot of love previously in planetary science. I mean, we've never sent a seismometer anywhere. I should clarify, we did have a seismometer on the uh, Viking missions that went to Mars in the 1970s, but they weren't successful, I believe. So this is kind of the first seismic attempt on another planet for 50 odd years. So yeah, it's proven that seismology is a pretty useful tool. It's also proven something interesting because we thought you needed two or more seismometers to get a handle on the interior of a body because you need to track the waves from two locations to then work out where they're coming from and other details. By having two seismometers, you can triangulate where the waves are coming from. Insight is only one seismometer. So they've had to do some kind of clever science to get some of that data out of it. And they've managed to localize 30 out of the 1300 Mars quakes. It's really proven basically how seismology can have this huge part to play in telling us about planets. Like we've seen inside two planets now. That's really cool. We know that they look kind of similar. We can map the interiors of these worlds, which is very fun. Now you're making me wonder, what do we usually do when we go to other planets if it's not seismology? <laughs> like geology, looking at composition of rocks and looking at composition of the atmosphere? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Geology is the main one, looking at compositions, what things are made of, doing a bit of sampling, trying to work out what things used to be present on the surface. Atmospheric studies as well. The Curiosity rover and Perseverance have a methane indicators to tell you how much methane is being produced or is in the local area. They have some other interesting weather instruments. Perseverance also has a tool to try and producing something from the Martian atmosphere to try and prove that for a future human mission. And obviously taking lots of pretty pictures of different locations and showing us what these worlds look like, which we hadn't seen before we got these landers on the surface. Yeah. So basically figuring out what they're made of, what they used to be made of, how they were formed, how they got to where they were. The most basic questions about these bodies that we just can't get up close to and personal with yet. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We need these machines to do this analysis. Mm -hmm. Now that we're sadly going to have to say goodbye to the InSight, will there be another seismometer mission to Mars after this? Not to Mars at the moment, but we have several other seismometer missions in the works to go to other locations. Currently, some scientists are planning to put a seismometer network on the moon. We want to get a better handle on the interior of the moon and some of the quakes and things happening on its surface. Then there's a mission going to Saturn's moon Titan in 2026 called Dragonfly, which is this amazing NASA mission that's a, it's a drone that's going to fly through the skies of Titan, and it's going to have a seismometer to try and work out what's going on inside Titan. We think there might be a subsurface ocean. Maybe it could support primitive signs of life. Wow. So that's going to be incredible. So it has to land then. It's not just going to fly through the atmosphere. It's going to land in this big ancient lake, Selk Crater, I believe. And then it's going to take off multiple times from the surface and fly around. It's going to be very, very cool. So that's a little bit like this helicopter that was deployed on Mars. Yeah, absolutely. That's the Ingenuity helicopter on the Perseverance mission. That's been testing some of the drone technologies we're going to need to operate this Dragonfly helicopter on Titan. You know, a lot of missions tend to outlast expectations of what's going to happen, just living way beyond what is considered their lifespan. Is there any chance that InSight will perk up or somehow miraculously recover? They actually tried to prolong the life of the lander with a weird technique. They tried scooping up dirt with the lander's arm and putting it on the panels, which are already covered in dust, which you might think, <laughs> why would they do that? Well, the idea was that the dust would stick to the dirt and then the very light Martian breeze would carry that dirt with the dust off the panels. It did help a little bit, 
but it hasn't been enough to save the mission. It must be uh, too far from the rovers for them to intervene. Yeah, it, the rovers are thousands of miles away. They they can't just drive over. I think in hindsight, they may have taken like a long stick with a brush on the lander and brushed off the panels. Maybe that's something to do for a future mission. Definitely. There is one way the lander could be still saved. So there are these small tornadoes on Mars called dust devils. They've seen thousands of these dust devils near the lander. They know they're there. They're all around this plane that they're in. One of them just hasn't happened to come over and uh, touch the lander yet. But it could happen that once the lander's powered down by the end of this year, it may be able to come back to life. They think either next year or the year after it could survive for that long, for two years. And if one of these devils comes over, it could take the dust off and the lander will power back up again. And then we'll have our seismometer active on Mars again. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. No problem. Jonathan O'Callaghan is a freelance space journalist. You can find a link to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcast or find Jonathan on Twitter at astro underscore Johnny online at jonathanocallahan.com. Up next, we have researcher John Cryan. We discuss the state of the research connecting the brain to the microbiome. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. This week, we have a special issue on the systemic microbiome, looking beyond the gut at the body as a whole and the microbiome's effects as a whole. As part of the special issue, John Cryan wrote an insight piece on tightening the connections between what we know about the microbiome and the brain and the steps we need to take to go from observation to mechanism. Hi, John. Hi there. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. There's a lot of intriguing links that have been made between our microbiomes and our brains. How important is the microbiome to the brain? What do we know? One thing I like to remind listeners is that the microbes were there first. <laughs> so it's important to frame everything from an evolutionary perspective. There's never been a time where our brain has existed without signals coming from the microbes. We have co-evolved with these friends and there are friends with many benefits. That's what we're trying to uncover, especially over the last decade. With that in mind, my colleague Sarkis Masmanian and myself were quite intrigued about putting a, a flag down to where are we? And where do we want to go, especially in moving from a lot of the amazing data we've found in animal models all the way to what we need to go to really understand what's going on in humans? Yeah, I mean, you definitely emphasize that there's molecules that are making their way into the brain, but we don't have microbes in our brain. They're not able to pass that barrier. But how might they be interacting? What do you see as the way they could signal to the brain? That's what we're really trying to understand. What are these pathways of communication between the gut and the brain? What we know is, and this is work from my lab well, over a decade ago now, we showed that the vagus nerve, 
The vagus nerve is this long wandering nerve that basically sends signals from all of our organs to our brain and from our brain to all our organs to basically help us feel how we feel. And we showed in a mouse model that when you cut the vagus, that all of the effects of a specific bacteria were gone in terms of behavior and physiology. So as I like to remind people, uh, what happens in Vegas doesn't always stay in Vegas, <laughs> no. but will affect our emotions. So that's one key pathway. But what we still don't know is how do the signals get to the vagus? So there's still a black box between the lumen of the gut and the vagus. And a lot of work now is trying to deconvolute these pathways. And we know the enteric nervous system, for example, is quite important. Another factor is the immune system. And the immune system is really heavily regulated by the microbiome. And we know that our immune system talks very closely to our brain. That's a key factor. Thirdly, we have a variety of hormones that are regulated by the microbiome, including oxytocin, which has been a lot of work on. And finally, it's worth remembering that our microbes in our gut are kind of like a factory making all kinds of weird and wonderful chemicals that our bodies wouldn't have otherwise. And so these chemicals, what we call metabolites, some of them can cross the blood-brain barrier or others can tinker with other systems in, in the body to influence brain function. What we're realizing now is that like all products in a factory, they're dependent on two main things, the quality of the workers. So that's the quality of the bacteria, what they're doing, and the quality of the raw material. And the raw material is coming from the diet. Hmm, that's really interesting. And I think you get it another big piece of what's going on with the literature here. And that's people have very different gut microbiome, like their populations are different over time and over place and over what they're eating. How is that part of this research going to move forward from here to better understand what's going on with the gut microbiome and the brain? That is one of the, the problems we have in understanding what a normal microbiome is and does one exist. You can go to your physician and get your blood pressure measured or get your cholesterol measured. They can tell you where you are in a normal range. If you go in with your microbiome readout, they'll just look at you in despair and not know what to do with you. But what we're beginning to understand is that the microbiome is the epitome of precision or personalized medicine and that each individual's microbiome might be somewhat different a little bit, but it's the same for them throughout their adult life. And so if we can start to chart the trajectory of the microbiome, we can start to see if it goes out of kilter and that might foresee certain illnesses or track certain conditions. And so that's one of the, the big things we're trying to understand in microbiome science altogether. That hasn't been really applied to brain function yet. And that's one of the things we feel would be needed with some urgency, I think, to really do large scale translational longitudinal studies. This is a big science project to follow people, to understand over time, and also do all these analyses on what's going on with their guts and their behavior. Exactly. And we, we don't understand it yet under normal situations, never mind when we go into pathologies, whether it's in psychiatry or neurology. So there's lots of hints, but we need to move from correlation towards causation. And that's one of the big stumbling blocks we have. Right. So we have germ-free mice and we can look at their brains, but we're never going to have a germ-free person. What has been done at the level of the brain with interfering with the microbiome and people. 
what has been happened is certain interventions with what we call probiotics or prebiotics or fermented foods. There's work ongoing there showing some really positive signals overall. But again, it's, it's not totally clear whether this is directly due to the micro effects on the microbiome or indirect. There are studies now being done with fecal transplants in a variety of psychiatric illnesses. The studies are small as yet, but there's more coming from Australia and Canada, for example. That would be useful. Autism field is perhaps the most forward in that regard. And there's some intriguing data, but it needs to be replicated at a much higher level. And these types of studies need to be funded much more. The other approach we have, which might seem a bit extreme, but we've used it and other groups in China and Canada have used it, is back translation into animals. So taking disease-associated microbiome and then transplanting it into an animal and seeing if the animal, when it takes up some of these microbes, whether it has some of the symptoms of that disease. And that has been shown for depression, for anxiety, for irritable bowel syndrome, and for autism. That's really interesting. These are not complete experiments. They have their flaws, but it's one approach to start to get at causality. That touches on this other point that you make in your piece. How much causality is there to dig out? Could what we see changing in the microbiome be a result or a symptom of problems elsewhere? That's such an important point. And there was a recent study in the autism field, which was trying to track diet and microbiome interactions and found that there were some associations between being a picky eater and microbiome changes. But it didn't answer the causation aspect was what was driving the kid to be a picky eater. And it's very hard to do that. Large-scale epidemiology has some powerful tools, but they need to be coupled with microbiome analysis. Using statistical approaches, you can look at various confounding factors. And we need to take into account diet, environment, medication. A lot of the medications that people take influence the microbiome, and that can also be a confound. But the genetics field have grappled with this a little bit as well. So we need to learn a little bit from where the genome-wide association studies were 20 years ago, where there was a lot of small-scale studies, which now wouldn't be published anywhere. (laughs) So we need to really see where the fields can go and also work together more and bring together the studies across cultures and across backgrounds to see if things are beginning to hold up. I mean, in some ways, this does seem like a big data problem and solution. It's not just doing uh, comparisons within one one genome, like the human genome. You're doing you're taking genomes of bacteria and viruses and other things that live in us, and then comparing them across people. It's a lot of data to kind of crunch through to find the patterns that we should care about. Absolutely. And it's a collaborative approach because on top of the the big data, it's also a big phenotyping approach. And this is where I would encourage people who are interested in neuroscience, psychiatry and neurology to really, that they have a huge role in making sure that we have well phenotyped people that are going into these types of analysis. Say we get some of this information that we want. We get some mechanism. We get some traction on what a normal microbiome is and what an imbalanced microbiome is. What do you see as kind of the next steps? What are we going to target with that? What could we treat? What could we solve? It's really about getting the timing right of when this occurs. And then there's the potential to actually intervene and reverse or rewire the plasticity in the microbiome. I'm quite keen to, to see things like targeted 
diet be used to be able to do that? We need to do a lot more studies with things like fiber and fermented foods to understand their impact on the microbiome, but also on the brain. So the good news story of, of all of this is that unlike our genomes, which we can't do a lot except blame our parents and our grandparents, <laughs> our microbiomes are potentially modifiable. So that gives us some agency over our potential health. And I think that's really important for the community as we move forward. Yeah. How plastic is the microbiome? I mean, you, you know, you see some studies that say, oh, you move in with someone, you live together for a while and your microbiome starts to overlap more. But then it also seems like it's set for your adulthood. Yeah. Where are we on that? It does kind of reach a steady state, probably. And this gets harder and harder post-adolescence even. But the studies out of Justin Sonnenberg's group, for example, have shown very nicely how fermented foods can modify the microbiome and have, have effects on, on health outcomes. And it's not always about what's there, but it's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. The functional repertoire, yeah. Functional readouts are, are what's really important. So you mightn't have to change what's there, but you could change what they're doing. Right. So by feeding them specific substrates that are going to make them work and basically produce different chemicals, for example. So there's a lot of focus on that right now to try and do that. And in brain science, we can learn a lot from the microbiome in other fields, whether it's the microbiome in metabolism, microbiome in obesity, cardiovascular disease or cancer. And neuroscience has been more slower, shall I say, to embrace the concept that brain health could be dependent on anything below the neck. <laughs> That's so true. We have um, probiotics, we have prebiotics, and now this is a term I have never heard before, psychobiotics. What are those? Psychobiotics is a term we coined here in Cork, my colleague Ted Dynan and myself, some years ago. And it really now it means targeting the microbiome for mental health benefits. We feel that psychobiotics offer us a lot of potential in understanding precision-based approaches to affect brain health in a positive way. But we do say buyer beware because most of the data on certain strains of bacteria out there haven't been validated at all. So we need to really have proper studies, control studies with a strong psychological or psychiatric readouts that are going to make sure that these psychobiotics work. We feel like we're at the beginning of a kind of a, what we coined a psychobiotic revolution and that we can really understand how diet and the microbiome can really have a protective and preventative as well as perhaps a therapeutic effect in managing mental health in the years to come. Thanks, John. Thanks, Sarah. It was a pleasure. John Cryan is a principal investigator at APC Microbiome Ireland, University College Cork. Stay tuned for the first in our new series on books exploring the science of food and agriculture. This month, host Angela Saini talks with Usman Badian, an expert on agricultural policy and development in Africa. Hello, I'm Angela Saini, science journalist, author, and host of this special series of podcasts interviewing the writers of important books on food and agriculture. For this first installment, I'm pleased to be joined by one of the authors of Food for All in Africa, a 2019 book looking at the possibilities and reality of sustainable intensive farming in Africa. Usman Badian is the executive chairperson of Academia 2063 and the former Africa director of the International Food Policy Research Institute. 
Recipient of the 2015 Africa Food Prize, he has a PhD in agricultural economics from the University of Kiel in Germany, and he's known for his pivotal work on agricultural development across Africa. In Food for All in Africa, Batian and his colleagues explore both the challenges around food precarity and hunger on a continent in which smallholder farming, sometimes even less than a hectare per family, is a part of everyday life, but also the enormous possibilities here for technological revolution. It's such an honor to be able to speak to you today. Could you just start by explaining what you mean when you say that this book is a book for optimists? The book is for optimists because it's looking at what can be done, where there are seeds of hope and where progress has been accomplished in the past. Despite the magnitude of the threats, there have been significant giant steps forward and looking at those, understanding the why and the how and with what give us confidence that they could be magnified in the future, scaled up and scaled out to solve uh, the problems uh, that we've faced in the past and certainly will continue to face in the future as well. One of the issues that you talk about very early on in the book is the Green Revolution. And we know that in Asia, decades ago, that led to very successful changes in the way agriculture operated in Asia, but not in Africa. Why do you think the Green Revolution hasn't achieved in Africa what it has in other parts of the world? What we want to do and what should work in Africa is a technology revolution that works and is adapted to African problems. So the conditions of the Green Revolution in Asia were different than they are today. Globalization wasn't at that level. So you could not transfer a model that works in a different environment, in a different time, to a different part of the globe, in a different era. So we wouldn't expect the Green Revolution a la Asia to work in Africa but technology-based and driven revolution in Africa is very much possible. And in just the last couple of decades, there's a chart in your book that shows that developing countries have overtaken industrial countries in the number of hectares devoted to biotech crops. What do you see then as the benefits for one of these technologies, genetic modification in Africa? I don't see how one can succeed in sustainable food systems without resorting to biotechnologies that will help us reduce the footprint of agricultural production. But let's go back to Africa, not just GMOs, but I think editing CRISPR, all the latest technologies are what Africa needs to master, to harness in order to leapfrog into the future. I don't see any possibility to reduce the footprint of agriculture in Africa while meeting the food needs of a growing and a young population, rising incomes, but also dealing with the vagaries of climate change. We need seeds that are drought tolerant, that are fertilizer nitrogen efficient, that are salt tolerant, that are pest resistant. And do you see that happening already? What kind of crops do you see on that biotech front? Recently, uh, there are genetically modified maize seeds available in Eastern Africa. So there's been genetically modified cotton that was introduced in West Africa and has a setback because of other things done, the technology itself. So I think that there are very timid beginnings, but all those show the huge promise of harnessing biotechnology and using it 
from the point of view of African farmers and African societies and their needs. The debate, the way it is being framed now in Africa is we take or we don't take. It's extremely passive. Somebody else develops it. Somebody else extends it. We have the leisure to take or not to take. It doesn't make sense. The debate ought to be in Africa. Do we have the capacities in terms of laboratories and technical skills to master these technologies? I know from times that I've reported on the issue of GM crops in India that one of the big issues here is hesitancy. Do you see that degree of hesitancy in African nations as well? It is more than hesitancy. There's more of an outright opposition because there's a lot of discussion around it that muddies the water. I would say uh, maybe some may not like that word, but fear-mongering around GMOs. And some of the arguments are hard to believe. I would understand and buy the safety arguments, but if somebody tells me, if you use GMO, you're making a big corporation rich. But the same person who tell me that are using the iPhone, uh, they're flying on airbuses, they're using the latest Samsung product, and those are among the richest corporations in the world, right? It's right if it makes my work all right, it increases my productivity, although I'm making somebody billionaire already richer, but it's not right if the farmer can make the same billionaire richer by improving their livelihood. So there's something that's not logical there. I understand the fear factor, but what we need to do is to know what we're afraid of, to understand what we're afraid of. And why can't we have the skills to do GMO, to master it, and to go beyond that, just like anybody else does? The future of agriculture is in biotechnology. You cut yourself off, you are written yourself off of the future. Even talking about this nature-based, nature-friendly agriculture, you can't do it without using biotechnology for better seeds. It's just going to be very hard to achieve. One of the other issues here is around smallholder farming. So a lot of African farmers, as in Asia, have very small plots of land, sometimes less than a hectare. How do you achieve the kind of technological progress, the industrialization, when you're dealing with such tiny farms? We have smallholder farmers that have been pretty competitive globally. There's examples of the groundnut sector uh, in West Africa. There's examples of the cotton sector also in West Africa. Smallholder farmers can be very efficient. Look at India and milk and the National Dairy Board, what they do. They're producing the largest amount of milk and it started with and maybe still be dominated by smallholder milk producers. So the size is not a hurdle. You use that as a frame in defining your strategy for intensification and for productivity growth. And you talk a lot in your book about the importance of homegrown technology and having that technological base within Africa itself. Where do you see good examples of that? The examples that I talked about of BT maize or BT cowpeas were developed by African institutions. But also, if you look at sectors where Africa has dominated global markets like cotton or like groundnuts, those were supported by locally based research systems. What matters most is, however, the skills, the capacities, and the infrastructure. The world has globalized, uh, and technology can be imported and adapted, but you have to have the capacity for that. If you don't invest in the R&D and science and innovation systems, you are just cutting yourself off the competition, and it's not going to happen. Going from the passive position of taking in these technologies to generating them is a must. It's very easy to talk about the African continent as though it's homogeneous. And of course, there's a huge amount of diversity 
political, geographical, environmental, climate variation. What different regional approaches have you seen that have worked in particular contexts? One of the uh, least known and spoken about successes is Senegal's fruits and vegetable sector, which between the late 90s and the early 2010s achieved gross rate annual of 55-0% in terms of the exports to the EU, from 10,000 tons to more than 100,000 tons, They're managing everything from quality to safety to seeds to imports and the like. I just want to move on now to another aspect of your book around hunger and nutrition. There are such high rates of hunger and nutrition globally, but in Africa in particular, child malnutrition is very high. Now, many people around the world are embracing vegetarianism, veganism, concerned about the impact of livestock production on the climate. But in your book, you highlight that meat in the diet, even very small amounts, can actually make a very big difference to child development. Um, And there are also financial benefits for small-scale farming families. For example, the example you give is diversifying into dairy goats. So what are your thoughts then on the role of meat in the future of food? First, on the levels of hunger and malnutrition. In the book, we also talked about what happened historically in post-independence Africa. In the 60s, Africa was sailing without issues and concerns. Its stagnation economically or economic decline while population was growing just pushed the stock of poor and hungry people over two decades. So when it started growing again after the 2000s, we have the highest levels of hunger and poverty ever seen. So it is against that background that the um, progress of the last two decades is actually remarkable. We had young governments that were freedom fighters, not managers. They were idealists, had the best uh, in their hearts, but even the profession of economic development wasn't really clear about exactly how economic transformation takes place in the early 60s and late 60s. We are left with those young governments trying to figure out how to chart the course. So mistakes were, of course, then made, and those mistakes uh, have come back to hunt us. Uh, in the early 2000s, that progress wasn't enough to undo the damage of the 70s and 80s. That's why, despite significant decreases in rates of malnutrition from 30 to 40 percent, if you look at child malnutrition, depending on whatever indicator you use, the backlog is still huge, right? So there's so much more to be done. After that book, we're currently engaged in just mapping out micronutrient deficiency across communities and solving that will require diversifying diets, including into protein-rich foods, including animal foods. But nothing tells us we have to do that the way we did in the past. You're seeing people are having lab-based meat and other things, right? So there is a way to innovate in the future, to enrich our diets with the needed protein and others without having a growing footprint, uh, actually reducing the footprint, the emission intensity of agriculture across Africa. Do you think that there is still a place for meat in that landscape? Absolutely. How you grow that meat and how you process it and how you trade it may be the issue. But I think that for the near future, we just don't have the supplies, the distribution networks, and the accessibility and affordability issues resolved for a a post-meat society in Africa. It's going to take generations to get to that. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Usman Badian. I'm Angela Saini, and I hope you'll tune in for the next segment in one month's time with author of Fresh Banana Leaves, Jessica Hernandez. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, 
write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.